0: Hello, and welcome to Aram, Buddhist Master. Last week, we discussed how the mind gets hijacked. This is an important turning point in our conversation because we now start to dig in to the deeper workings of the mind looking behind the veil to understand what really goes on somehow it feels that because the mind is the one thing that we have always had there have been times where we have been without a body but we've always had a mind because the mind is always what we've had with us. We have become all too accustomed to it. Never have we stopped to take a look at what goes on behind the scenes. We haven't really stopped to ponder, to ask ourselves why we work the way we do. And so just like many other things, we take the mind for granted. The problem with this is, of course, that when the mind works in ways that we don't wish it to work, we really have no, nowhere to look for answers. We have nowhere to go. We are stuck with it. We are stuck with the mind and the problem that it has. You know, if you wore a pair of shoes and somehow a thorn got stuck to it and you had no idea how to remove or extract this thorn and throw it away you always have another option you could of course take off the shoe and that way be free of the problem at least until someone comes along and helps you Take the thorn out. But when it comes to the mind, you're really stuck. When the mind is broken, when the mind is ailed, when the mind goes wary, you have no idea what to do about it. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You don't know how to fix the problem and there's nothing you can do about having to be with your mind because being is a function of the mind itself so therefore although people spend a lot of time trying to work out solutions to problems global problems intergalactic problems and even universal problems and with every passing day, science and technology and the advancing human capability, knowledge, allows us to reach further and find innovative answers to these problems unless we start to look at ourselves, we stop for a moment and look within ourselves. The very instrument that we use to study the world around us, unless we take a moment to use that very instrument to study the instrument itself, we'll never be out of this misery, of all the problems, issues, pain, heartache, and troubles that the human existence brings us. This is why the Buddha's philosophy tackles the fundamental problem, the fundamental problem of existence, and all the conditions which are a result of existence itself. So this is why we, monks and those who strive to seek liberation, emancipation, enlightenment, whichever word you might be familiar with, we spend a lot of time being introverts, looking inside of us spending time, perhaps, in meditation. That's not just a case of shutting our eyes out and not thinking about anything. On the contrary, be it with our eyes shut or eyes wide open, it's a look at ourselves. It's a microscope turned within, turned on within ourselves. So, to do this we must be skilled, just like any worker who needs or who should be skilled enough in their job. One who wishes to tame their mind should be skilled in the tools, methods and techniques that are essential to do that. What we are about is to help you, to upskill you, to share with you these methods, techniques. So, today, let's take a further step forward into finding out how the mind really works. These talks can, on some occasions, feel a bit heavy but that's only because you may be listening to this for the first time let's be honest it may be that you have spent 20, 30, 40, 50 or maybe even more years of your life in various academic institutions learning about lots of stuff. But when did you ever really stop to learn about yourself? This is why this may sound very unfamiliar. But that's very ironical. Because if there's anything that you should be most familiar with, it should be yourself, shouldn't it? When you've lived with yourself all your life throughout known existence, But alas, it's the one thing that we know least about, ourselves, how our mind works. Why is it that we find some things more attractive than others? How we fall in love and how we fall out of love? Why we feel angry, jealousy, hatred, desire? Why we feel passionate about some things? And we don't feel a thing about these other things. How does happiness happen? Why do we feel sad? Why do we feel fearful? Sorrow and grief. Ups and downs in life. This is the roller coaster. So it's time to find out. Again, I give you plenty of caution This can be heavy on occasion but that's only because this may be unfamiliar territory. So, the more you make yourselves familiar with it, the more time you spend in these subjects thinking about, contemplating on these ideas, the more it will become familiar to you. Just like anything that you may have learned throughout your lifetime. So, please do not worry. And please take your time, there's no rush at all. We are here always for you, to help you unravel the beauty of the mind, how it works, how the whole thing hangs together. Excuse me. If ever you have questions, well, we are here for you. So just hang in there until the penny drops. And that will certainly happen. You just need to give it some time. Right then, without further ado, let's get cracking. Before we do so, as always, let's take a moment to pay homage to the infinitely virtuous one, the most magnificent one, the most merciful one, the most noble one, the fully awakened one. This is the Gautama supreme buddha namo bhagavato arahato sammabuddhas namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammabuddhas namo tassa bhagavato arahato Samma Sambuddhas. So now I'd like to draw your attention to the screen so we can continue our discussion from where we left off last week. So let me quickly remind you what we talked about last week. By now we are very familiar with the five functions of the mind. We now know that these are to receive, register, recognize, respond, and perceive. So in the lifetime of one thought moment, all five of these things must take place. Now, it's important to understand that it is these five things that happen in the mind, because when we get When we move further into our discussion you'll begin to appreciate that it is the misunderstanding or the lack of knowledge. Last week we discussed that there are two types of knowledge true and false knowledge. False knowledge is ignorance. True knowledge is wisdom. Whichever version of it we hold, if the knowledge we hold is the truth about the world that we live in and whatever the said thing is, then that is wisdom. If whatever knowledge we hold does not agree with the truth or what is reality, then that is ignorance. It is the ignorance, believe you me, about these five things that really leads to this whole problem of suffering. How that all works, we will learn in due course. So this is why it's important to understand what these five things are, how they work, their characteristics, what they are by their very nature, Because as I said, ignorance is simply misunderstanding or lack of knowledge, lack of true understanding about these five things. So much so that when the Buddha was asked, what is ignorance? On several occasions, he goes on to describe ignorance simply as being false view about these five things, because it is these five things that operate in the mind. So our lack of understanding of the mind and how it works is really the whole problem here. Once you understand the workings of the mind, that in itself is the answer to the problem. I'd like to offer an analogy to this because I think it'll help us all figure out exactly what I mean by this. Imagine you're in the dark, and I mean literally a dark room. And let's say that's where you've always been, ever since you were born you've only ever been in a dark room, so you've never actually seen light. Now, if someone were to ask you, what is darkness? You wouldn't have the foggiest idea, would you? Because if you've always only ever been in the dark, you wouldn't know what darkness was. In much the same way, you wouldn't know what light was. Because darkness is the opposite of light. So you need to have witnessed and experienced both of these to be able to say one is not the other or be able to tell one from the other. So think about it then. For someone who's always been in the dark to then be asked the question, what is darkness? You know, you wouldn't be able to tell. But let's imagine I were to give you a torch, an electric torch, and I asked you, here's a torch, can you show me darkness? Or let's say, I walked into the room, as someone who has seen light, and you are in a room, and you've only ever known darkness, let's say you ask me, Bhante, What is darkness? We are both now in a dark room And there's no way I can take you out into the light Let's say that's forbidden by the rules of this game But in my hand I have a torch Right? So now If I light the torch What do you see? Do you see darkness? Or do you see light? I can only ever show you light. Once you've seen light, now you know what darkness is. So, by that analogy, I would like for you to understand that light or wisdom is really understanding what darkness is all about. And this is so true when it comes to Buddhist philosophy because in the Buddha's time and in his sermons, when he preaches the Dhamma, he talks about ignorance quite a bit. And whenever he talks about ignorance, he talks about wisdom as well. And when he talks about wisdom, he says, Monks, do you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is understanding what ignorance is. Now, it seems quite funny that, because that's just like saying, Light is knowing what darkness is. They're the complete opposites. But the reason for that is because not knowing what darkness is, is what leaves you in the dark. So when someone says, I'm in the dark, why do they say that? Is it something they say when they have a choice about it? Someone says, I'm in the dark, when they have no choice about it, isn't it? If you had the choice to figure out or work out the truth Would you leave yourself In the dark? The very fact that you're in the dark Is proof enough that you are not availed with an option to redeem yourself from darkness. So this is why I go back to the analogy of the man in a dark room who's never seen light. He's in the dark. He's in the dark because he doesn't know the truth. And like we discussed last week, the most terrible thing about false knowledge, which is ignorance, is that when you bear it, you have absolutely no idea that it is false knowledge. Because you see, if you knew that it was false knowledge, would you any longer hold that knowledge is true? I mean, can you know that something's not true and hold it or bear it as true? Of course, it's, it's, it's impossible. You can do that. Not even if you tried. You know your name, don't you? Of course you do. Can I now convince you that you are someone else? If your name was John, can I convince you that you're Tom? I could ask you to repeat after me. You know, someone could put a gun against your head and go, right, mate, your name's Tom. Say that out loud or else. And then you go, okay, my name's Tom. Can I go now? Thanks. You know that you're John. You can't not know something. Whatever you know, you know, right? You can't unknow something. There isn't even a word like that in the dictionary. Because it's not even possible. You can't unknow something. You can only know something. Once you know it, you know it. You can know something as being wrong or you can know something as being right, but whatever it is you know, you can't unknow it. So, when you think something wrong is right, so really it's wrong, but you think it's right, unless you're informed by an external body, someone comes up to you, someone more knowledgeable about that particular thing comes up to you or you read it in a newspaper or some article or you know, some other way you learn that what you hold is false, what you hold is not the truth, there is no way you can escape from it. Ignorance is the same thing. You may have heard on various occasions, if you've listened to previous Dharma talks by perhaps other monks or in various other settings, that To attain wisdom, you need the help of someone who has already seen the path. Also someone called a Kalyanamitta or a noble friend. You need a noble friend to understand the noble path. Because it is only someone who knows that what you know is false can teach you can show you. In fact, can shed light. Because when you think what you think is right, you know that what you think is right, regardless of whether that is right or wrong. So, your ignorance of these five things is what the Buddha says, the root cause of all suffering. Now, right now, you might wonder how that can ever be. I mean, these five things and me not knowing what these five things are or their nature, their characteristics, how can that give me suffering, Bhante? What's the connection? You know, these are just five random things. I've never heard of them in my life before. This is the first time I heard of them. And you're telling me this is why where I, I don't like something? You're telling me this is why me not understanding their nature is the reason I get angry? Come on, but they talk sense. Otherwise, I'm going to get angry, you might say. Yes, as I say, hang in there. It can get a bit heavy, but once you work it out, that's it. And the reason I'm sharing this tale about wisdom and ignorance, and why when you think something is true whether it is right or wrong, you know, it is true for you, is the very reason that you're asking me, Bhante, what's the connection? You know, we know these five words, but you know, only a couple of weeks ago, you taught us that there's such a thing as a thought moment that arises and passes away, and in the lifetime of one of those thought moments, you know, these five things will arise and pass away. What is the connection between that and jealousy? What's the connection between this and anger? Fear. you telling me I'm scared of the dark because I don't understand these five things. I'm scared of spiders. What's this all about? What's the connection? There's no relation. Well, you know, you're bound to say that. It's only reasonable that you say that. Because anyone who does not understand these five things will say that. It's only fair that you do. So that's what I'm saying, hang in there. It's okay if you feel that there's no connection between this and all the problems you've had had and you do have in your life. Any kind of mental suffering that you have undergone or any kind of mental suffering that you're going through right now and any kind of mental suffering you may go through in future, the death of a loved one, heartbreak, Someone dumps you. All of that. All mental suffering. Grief. Sorrow. Lamentation. Vexation. All of these things is because of lack of understanding. About these five things. As innocent as these five things may seem. They are at the crux. Or at least they are. Misunderstanding or not understanding about them is at the crux of all suffering. And I promise you, I will explain how all that works. But, of course, all you have to do is just hang in there. So let's get back to topic. So we have these five things then. That's why I will be spending plenty of time talking about them. Because, again, why? It is not understanding what these five things are and how they work, their characteristics. This is the whole reason that we suffer. So this is why I'm going to be spending time talking about this. Last week we talked about the arising and passing away of a thought moment. And I said that throughout the life cycle of one of these thought moments, which there's ever only going to be one of them at any given time, so you're never going to have two thought moments in, a, in the mind. So the mind can only, there's only capacity for the mind to hold one thought moment at any given time. In the lifetime of one of these thought moments, or these thought cycles, you will have these five things happen within the mind. Now, because the mind is the instrument that we use to perceive the world around us, It should make sense that these five things must happen within the lifetime of a of a thought moment. Fair enough? Because, you know, if you don't receive what the brain brings you from the outside world, how are you ever going to be able to perceive it? Shut your eyes and tell me what I'm showing you right now. You have no idea. Why is that? Because receiving, the receiving function does not happen. Okay, open your eyes, now what if I were to disconnect your optic nerve? Again, you would have no idea, because the path that the external stimulus has to take to reach the mind has been interrupted. And if it is interrupted at any point, then the process does not complete. And if the process does not complete, then you are not going to be able to perceive whatever the stimulus is. An important thing that we need to learn here as well, and that is all of this all of this perceiving is simply the result of a multitude of causes. That's why if you have your eyes closed, it matters not how badly you want to see something it ain't gonna happen. You know, if it did, then we wouldn't have such a thing as a blind man. A blind man cannot see, not because he doesn't want to see. A blind man cannot see because there's a process that needs to occur for him to be able to see. But if that process is broken at any point, then it won't work. So our desire, our wishes, our fancies and our fantasies, our whims, none of these things are really going to get us anywhere to get the product that we want. It is simply the result of causes. So we know then that receiving has to happen because the brain has to come and dump the stimulus that it has just received from the five sense organs on the mind and as soon as that dump takes place, so this is like a yard if you like, the mind receives it. And as soon as the mind receives it, now the mind registers that it has received it. So this registering, again you know the word register can have lots of connotations. By, what I mean by registering here is to know, to know that a parcel has been received and I offered the example or the analogy last week of someone walking up to the door, you know, a parcel delivery driver knocking on your door and you know that someone's at the door. So the mind needs to know that a stimulus has been received because unless the mind knows this, The mind cannot do anything with it. So to know that this has happened, then this function that is registering has to take place. It's it's kind of like an alert that you might receive on your mobile phone when you get a text message. Think about that. You know, the alert that you receive, so uh, that notification that you get, say, the, the audible notification that you get when a text message arrives on your phone that only tells you that a text message has arrived. It, it is not an indication of the contents of the text message, is it? But as soon as you hear the alert, that ringtone, if you like, you know that an, a message has been received. So as soon as you hear that message, then you can now recognize that it's a text message. This is why on your phone you may have different alerts for different things. Like for example, if you have an app that tells you when the bus is about to arrive, then you might have an alert set on your mobile phone to alert you five minutes before the bus arrives so you can get there on time. Perhaps you have an alert that tells you when your bank balance drops between uh, below a certain value so you know you can top it up. Perhaps you have an alert on your phone that you receive when one of your CCTV cameras have been triggered. So it's more than likely that you have different tones for each of these notifications. Why is that? so you know which stimulus has been received you don't want to be thinking that you've received that a bus has arrived for instance if what's really going on is your bank balance has dropped below a certain level because your response to these two events are very different aren't they so Therefore it's important that you recognize these two events as two separate and different events You need to be able to distinguish between these two and to distinguish between these two events. You need to register them separately And that is the function of registration It's a very important function without that your mind would simply be You know ignorant not in that sense ignorant but Ignorant that something's going gone on it will simply not know. The Buddha offers a fantastic simile for this process of registering. He says it's like when a raindrop or when a drop of water falls on the ground. you ever observed that? When a drop of water falls on the ground, it splatters. Or perhaps into a pool of water, if you were to drop another drop of water into a pool of water, then at that moment there's a tiny, a microscopic even, splatter. It is an event that tells you that something's happened. It's a notification if you like. So much so that there's one sure and short way of knowing whether it's raining. I know some people, when they want to know if it's raining, they look up. But for me, or I know some other people do the same, one of the safest bets to check whether it's raining is to look at the ground or at a puddle of water. If you see water splattering or if you see splashes, then you know it's raining. But that's funny though, isn't it? Because raining is something that happens above But you look at the ground, doesn't seem like there's a connection, but there is, isn't there? When you look at the ground, you're not looking for rain, but you're looking for signs of rain. So that is what this registering is. The mind registers that a stimulus has been received. So therefore it makes sense that it has to immediately follow the receiving process. And as soon as it has been registered, what happens next is recognition. So when you see the signs of a particular event, you know that that is what it is. is, That is how you recognize it. Now, of course, you can misrecognize it. And misrecognition can lead to all sorts of problems. I agree. But Rightly or wrongly, you recognize something. Even if it's something you don't know, you'll still recognize it as something you don't know. That's still recognition. Why is it important that you recognize, even if it's something you don't know? I mean, after all, what is this I don't know business all about anyway? How do you know that you don't know something? You know you don't know something when you don't recognize it. Isn't that true? I could show you something for instance if you've never seen one of these before in the very first talk I showed you one of these and I said you know one day I'll explain to you what this is and why I use one of these in the Dhamma talks and the time will come for that But for the time being, it may be that you've seen one of these for the first time. So therefore, if I were to ask you what this is, or what this was, you'd you'd say, sorry, Bhante, I don't know. What is it you're holding in your hand? Now you see, you know that you don't know what this is. How do you know that you don't know what this is? Here I have a pen in my hand. How do you know that you know what this is versus how do you know that you don't know what this is? You know this because you are able to recognize. You're able to dip into this fantastic data store that you have that is called memory. And in memory, you'll have records. You'll have records of things you have experienced in your life. And these things will be sights, sounds, yes, you know the drill now Yes, smells, tastes, and touch Oh, and there's more What about the things that you might have conjured in your mind? Perhaps a dream that you had Now that's not a sight per se because you've not seen it with your physical eyes So it's a complete The whole dreaming business happens in the mind, doesn't it? But you can relate what happened in your dream. Sometimes you have good dreams, sometimes you have bad dreams or nightmares. And you can, when you wake up, you can tell someone, Oh, you you know, guess what? I dreamt last night. So how are you able to tell this? It's not because you've seen it or you've smelt it or you tasted it or you touched it. But it's because you had those thoughts. And they go into your memory banks. This is your data store. Your, this is where you so voraciously dip in. Whenever you're trying to find something you, you think you know. In fact, the process of being able to know or the process of knowing is entirely dependent on your memory banks. If not for memory, you wouldn't know absolutely anything, not even your name. You wouldn't know who you are. You probably even wouldn't know whether you're male or female, if not for memory. So memory has an important part to play in the perceiving process, because prior to moving on to perceiving, recognition has to happen. So, as I said, you can either recognize that you know something or you can also recognize or through recognition, you can come to the conclusion that you don't know what something is. And they're both valid and they're both equally important because, you know, think about it for a second. Throughout your life, you Learned a lot of things, didn't you? Because you didn't come into this world knowing what everything was. You didn't know a lion from a tiger. Or you didn't know if a, duck, a dog from a cat. You didn't even know your mom from your dad. But what happened? Because you didn't recognize them, you then responded to the things you didn't recognize in a very intelligent way. What was that response? You asked, so you could find out. You asked, what is this? Who is this? How is it? Where is this? Why is this? When is this? These questions were all prompted when you struggle to recognize something. And recognition is not simply of material and physical objects. It could be events. It could be natural or artificial occurrences. You know, just random phenomena. Sometimes even very abstract things. Something that you couldn't draw on a piece of paper. Like, for example, love. If you felt affectionate towards someone For the first time in your life, you might have gone and asked somebody and said, you know, when I saw her, something happened inside of me. I don't know what it is. What is it? But I just felt very uncomfortable and felt really good at the same time. What is it? What happened? What was that? What was that feeling? You might have asked. And then someone would have said, oh, that's, that's called affection no that's called love if they were nice or they might have mocked you if they were being unkind to you so you are able to respond to inputs you received from the world and by the world you know when i say the world this this word the world it's important you understand what i mean Sometimes, you know, some of these words will have various meanings and sometimes it is that I wish to convey one particular meaning and it it is quite possible that you might interpret a very different kind of meaning. Don't worry too much about that, but because it provided you hang in there as I have kept like saying for the this is the tenth time I've probably said this today if you hang in there, over the course of these talks, you will begin to realize what I actually meant by that. Why is that important? It's important because sometimes, you know, I, in fact, almost always, it's not the word that is important, rather it's the meaning that I wish to convey to you that is important. Matters not what you call a cat in another language, provided you're You know, one guy who's Chinese, the other guy's Indian, the other guy's Mexican, the other guy's Japanese, right? And the other guy's an Eskimo. It matters not what each of them use in their mother tongue to refer to a cat, provided they're all talking about the same thing, provided the meaning is conveyed, then communication can take place. Right? So equally, what matters is that the meaning behind these words are conveyed and I know that can be a bit of a struggle because some of these things are quite abstract and I have to use words that you already know rather than refer to say Pali terms that you might find in the three canons, but they may mean absolutely nothing to you Particularly if they're brand new words and you've never heard them for the, in, your, in your entire life Sometimes it may be easier to give another meaning to a word that you already know So I don't expect for you to completely and entirely erase your memory of all meaning that you may have attributed to the words that I use sometimes on in these talks, but all I wish is, or all I ask for, is that you keep, the, you keep the, those definitions open so that we can add more meanings to those words. So when I say world, I don't necessarily mean the globe per se. You know, it's not that globe that you have on your desk. That's not what I mean by the world. It's not the earth, if you like. When I say the world, I mean everything and anything that can reach you through your five senses. So, it's in fact a collective noun for sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thoughts. Is that fair enough? Can you, can you update your definition of the world just for these talks? Would you be so kind and do that, please? Right, so when I say world, I mean that it's an aggregate term to imply sight, sounds, Smells, taste, touch, and thoughts. Oh, and in addition to that, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and the mind. All of this, all of this together, is the world. We'll keep adding more stuff to this word that uh, to to what encompasses what when I when I say the word the world. But for the time being. You know, you can keep it at, at that. So, I remember the other day I drew it on the board when I first started to use the whiteboard and I on, on one hand side you had the, you know, you had the flower, then you had a perfume bottle, uh, you had a speaker, you remember that? So, that was the sense stimuli and then alongside them you had the five sense organs. Remember, and then you had their coming together so eye comes into contact with sight, Ear comes into contact with sound, taste comes into contact with tongue and so on, and then those Impulses are conveyed to the brain. Yeah, you remember this and then from the brain they are relayed onto the mind And I hope you remember I also said that even if all those five sense organs went on strike one day, you'd still have the mind who is perfectly capable of feeding itself and keeping itself busy. So the mind is a wonderful and fantastic little beast that can keep itself fed all by itself. So it's, it's quite self-sufficient. But life would be quite boring if it was simply the mind feeding itself. Therefore, we have all these five senses that keep us, well, out of boredom. So now you understand why recognition is so important because you would know how to respond to the world. Remember the world now? Yeah? You would know how to respond to the world if not for recognition. You know this is a saucer. That's why you don't, well, play ball with this. Your recognition of this is very important to your response to the world. Right, so now we understand, receive, register, recognize, and respond. Again, what's perceive? When all these four things come together, their coming together is very, very important. It's vital because we do all that. Well, actually, not we do all that. These four things happen to really enable us to perceive or the mind to perceive what's going on in the world, right? So quite like in the analogy I offered you one day where a visitor comes, knocks on the door, you walk up to the door open, welcome them in, if there's someone you want to welcome them or want to welcome, and then you ask them to come in, you get them to sit down, you might offer them some refreshments, right? Have a bit of a chat and then after a while, when they've Overstate their welcome, right? They might finally leave and then someone in the family might come around later or maybe, you know, your better half or your spouse might turn up and ask, hey, what have you been up to today? And you'll say, well, guess what? So and so came earlier on in the day and we had a chat and talked about this, that and the other. So, you know, now, you're able to relate the entire story, you know, in one package, right? all that. So it's like when I hold this thing in front of you, immediately you know that this is a pen, that it can be used to write, right? and uh, perhaps that it has weight, or its shape, that it's cylindrical. Right, and you know you could hit someone with this if you really wanted to. All these things you know about this in a flash of a second. So really, when you when you see a pen, it's not just the fact that it's a physical object that comes to your mind. It's a it's a whole package, isn't it? The whole thing, the pen you perceive as one entity. Everything you can do with this, its characteristics, its Physical characteristics, and if maybe you know the, its chemical characteristics, or if it had some biological characteristics, right? All of that you'd know in in one in one collection, and that collection is the moment you have perceived it. So the mind is very—it's very important that the mind can perceive; otherwise, existence would be very difficult. Imagine if I had to hold one of these up, and you, you know, and you'd have to. Understand this In its constituent parts Every single time But you don't need to do that now Because when I say the word pen A picture comes into your mind You know it's used to write You know it has weight right? You know it, is, it, it has a mass right? You know all of these things You know that it's probably Made of what? Plastic, wood or something All that It's part and parcel and that is perception. So these things happen in the mind. Let's switch back to the board again. So these things happen in the mind, and in the course of the cycle of this, or the life cycle of the mind, or beg your pardon, this thought moment, all these five things happen, and and allows the mind, or allows the thought on behalf of the mind to be able to, well, quite literally, Receive, register, recognize, respond and perceive the world in which we live. Now, you know, the body itself is not able to do this. So, you know, if it weren't for the mind, and let's say the body could, you know, do stuff like walk without the mind, you know, you wouldn't be able to avoid a pit, for instance. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to avoid a fire, for instance. You wouldn't be able to avoid, you know, a, a pool of water or maybe quicksand. You wouldn't be able to avoid an elephant. Why? Because it is the mind that allows you to be able to understand the world, or the better word to use is perceive the world that you live in, and also you know keep the body safe. It's the mind that tells you you know this is bad for you. It's the mind that tells you that's got that's got too much fat in it. You should probably not have that, but gone on, just once. All that is the mind's doing. The body does not want that. You know, although it might feel like when you, when you, when you bite into a juicy, uh, I don't know, say, you know, a steak or something, or, or maybe, a, you know, if that's not your cup of tea, maybe a cup of tea, and you find it delicious, right? Then it's not your tongue that says it's delicious and please, can I have another sip? It's actually your mind that's saying that. Because if you were to, say, implant that tongue on another person, you can't expect that person to have the same tastes as you do. So it's not the, the tongue that does that. It's the mind. So really, the way you need to understand this is the mind actually, actually the mind enslaves all of this, the entire body, particularly the five sense organs. He wouldn't be making a grievous sin to think of your five sense organs and the remainder of your body as slaves of your mind. So the mind does a fantastic job of enslaving the five organs and the body. The body is not able to act on its own accord. It has to obey the mind because it is after all the mind that gets it to do It's jobs Whether you like it or not Your body does what your mind wants it to do Now at this point you're probably saying Well Bhante, aren't there some functions that are autonomous That the mind has no control Such as breathing you might think Or maybe digestion Or you know growing The mind has no control over that Um, Okay, I'll give you that for now But it is the mind, the presence of the mind is still important, isn't it? Without the presence of the mind, those things wouldn't happen. You're not going to grow any taller after you die. The body is still there, but the mind isn't. So you could say, for instance, pump blood around the body and maybe even oxygenate your blood and maybe put in food, but the body isn't going to grow any bigger Or In, in, in mass or anything like that Because you, the mind is absolutely essential The presence of the mind is important for That to happen So the mind has a crucial part to play in existence And what's really really important Is to understand at this juncture Is These five sense organs Are Slaves of the mind If you are If you are willing to admit and accept this reality, it'll help you a great deal to free yourself. Because right now, even when you know that something you feel like tucking yourself into is something not good for you, it's unhealthy, it's got too much fat, it's got too much salt, it's got too much sugar, too many calories, right? You still dig into it, don't you? I don't mean, you know, this is not a general statement about everybody, but isn't this one of the problems that you have? You know, how many diets have you been on and failed miserably? Do you know why diets don't work? It's nothing wrong with the diet. It's not the diet plan that's wrong. The problem is you're trying to go on a strict diet. You're trying to you're trying to push your body through a diet with a mind that is untamed. That's like trying to get a vehicle to drive along a path within the marked areas of a road with a drunken driver. How is that ever going to work? Because the car the, the vehicle has to respond to the driver. So when the driver turns left, the car ain't going to go right. Similarly, the reason that diets don't work is not because it's anything wrong with the diet. But that's usually where people point their finger and say, that diet doesn't work. I tried it, it doesn't work. Yeah, you tried it with a mind that is not tamed. That was the problem. So, you know, understanding Buddhist philosophy has lots of benefits, such as it's even going to help you reduce weight. How about that? How about that for size, if you'll pardon the pun? So you see, there are lots of benefits to be gained by understanding how the mind works. You have no control. Sometimes, you know, you go to a party or maybe you go to a a, a buffet, go to a restaurant, and you know that's the last thing you need to be serving yourself, but you still go for it. Or maybe you open the fridge only to get yourself some cool water. But, you know, how many times have you failed from stopping yourself at water? Because there's a bottle of fizzy drink right next to it. How many times have you stretched your arm out, right? And reached for the water. But when you looked at it, it wasn't the water after all. And then you started blaming your hand or your arm or your body for it. When really, you just couldn't control yourself. That was the mind doing that dirty trick all along. You know, ultimately, the body has to suffer for the mind's wrongdoings. Do you think that's reasonable? Is that fair? You know, your next door neighbor commits a crime. Are you all right with you going to prison for that? But that's what happens. The mind is untamed And the body has to suffer Sometimes people Injure themselves Deliberately Because the mind Wishes for that to happen You know sometimes Maybe someone decides To walk a tightrope Blindfolded When he's drunk How about that you know, when one is inebriated, they have no idea what's going on because any control they had over their mind is lost. And then there's no saying how much damage the body might have to suffer as a result of that. But sometimes you can't stop yourself. That is because you don't understand how the mind works. So, you know, no matter what Habit you might want to get out, get yourself out of, whether it's drinking or whether it's you know, any addiction that you might have to particular types of food, you know it's not good for you and you want to stop it, you want to break yourself from that, right? Or maybe you just, you know, when you start eating you forget that you know, your body can only take so much, right? Some people have that problem or perhaps that, you know, you need to go to the gym more times than you're doing right now because you know any times more than zero is better for your health so the doctor says right but you just can't get yourself up off the sofa and get those trainers on and get yourself out the door right or sometimes you do and it's raining and you you know go "Uh, not today right have you have you not found yourself in those situations and what's the answer? Where, where do you go from here? What, counselling? Therapy? Where's the answer? fact, sometimes when you, what you might do is get yourself a friend, an ally who, or, an, or an accountability partner. So you say, hey, mate, right, mate, I need to get to the gym now, right? 200 kilos is just too many kilos. I need to get to the gym. Please, please, can you, can you, can you get me up? And uh, No, the the guy rings you first day and you go "Mm, Yeah, sure, let's go. Second day um, Yeah, why not? Third day, you know, I think I've I've worked too hard. I Shouldn't have stretched myself that much. Maybe I should take a, a day off. That's not your body saying that. That's not your body saying that. The flesh is willing but the mind is weak. This is the truth. The flesh is always willing. Your body is always willing to do whatever the mind says. The problem is, when the mind goes insane, the mind starts saying all sorts of nonsense. And unfortunately, the body does nothing other than surrender. The body does not fight back. You know, if you wanted to jump off a cliff, what does the body do? Go on strike? Protest? Go on a hunger strike? Oh no, the body, when the mind says jump, the body follows the order. But the problem is when the body does that, it has to suffer. A broken leg, a twisted ankle, had right? A broken neck, who knows? A fractured skull, yeah? Some of these things sound familiar? A broken kneecap? Have you suffered any of these on any of your adventures? only to later tell yourself, why did I even think about doing it? Could you then look at your body and go, why didn't you stop me? Could you ask your body that question? Pointless, because the body is just going to say, that's not my job. You tell me what to do, boss, and I just follow orders. So, you see, it is the body's It is the mind's responsibility to protect, not only the mind, but also the body in which it resides. But how can one do that if they do not understand the workings of the mind? Why the mind thinks that it wants to get on that tightrope? Why the mind thinks that it wants to jump off a plane? I'm not saying any of these things are bad or wrong. I'm just saying, you know, these are things that can cause injury. And, uh, should you avoid them? That's not for me to say. I'm just saying, you know, make sure that you're making the right choices. Right at the beginning of these talks, I, I said, you know, the reason that I'm presenting this, the Buddhist philosophy to you, is so that you can make the right choices. You know, it's good to have all the cards laid out on the table, isn't it? So you can make the right choice. I, I love choices because, you know, then, provided you have all the information, then you can make the right choice. I know for a fact that most people make the wrong choices because they lack information. And unfortunately then they have to suffer as a result of that. So this is why we learn about the mind. Right, getting back to this, rising and passing away is what's going on here. So it takes half the time, that's meant to be a straight line, to rise and half the time to pass away. in the life cycle of this, one of these thought moments, these five functions take place, right? So all that seems fairly obvious now. Now, last week we talked about the issue of fear and grief. Yeah. So remember, we talked about how the mind expects to receive beauty and beauty is a very generic term in our discussions because we ref- we use the word beauty to talk about lots of things beauty of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch and even thoughts right? so instead of having to say a beautiful flower and a delicious item of food right, we just say beauty so that's just a very It's it's easier for us. So, the mind expects beauty because it thinks beauty equals happiness. And, but we know now that beauty is not the same thing as happiness. We know now that beauty is actually what we have understood as pleasure. And pleasure is not the same as happiness. We know that now. Because what is pleasure? Pleasure is a product of a function. It's so important to get that into our heads. I don't even mind if you memorize that and chant it like a mantra. Pleasure is the product of a function, whereas happiness is not. Happiness is a state of mind that is there by default. Happiness can only be taken away. It cannot be given. Doesn't even sound right, right? But then, what did I do when I gave my girlfriend a bouquet of flowers? Bhante? Didn't I give her happiness? Um, no, not quite. But 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 when I proposed to her, I'm sure I saw her happy. I gave her an abundance of happiness, an abundance of joy. Mm, not quite. That was pleasure that she experienced. That's why you can't make everybody happy by proposing to them. Sometimes. Uh, some people, that's the last thing they'll expect from you. You've never seen proposals gone wrong? Come on, surely you must have. So a proposal does not make, make someone happy. No, it doesn't. Relief from vexation makes someone, well, happy in this sense. what I mean by is pleasure. Happiness is not something you can give someone. Happiness is what someone gets when they're free of suffering because happiness is there by default. It can only be soiled or let's say rusted or let's say tarnished by suffering. Take out all that. It's like, it's like a piece of white cloth. Right? How, much, how much whiter can you make a piece of white cloth? A white cloth is white. You can't make it whiter. The only thing you can do is you can soil it. You can soil it by you know, spraying something on it or dropping something on it. Maybe stain it by dropping some wine on it or maybe some food on it or you know, putting it on the floor or on the ground and maybe you can get, you know, you make it muddy, get it muddy. You can do things like that but you can't make a white cloth white It's white. In much the same way, the mind is happy by default. A mind moment, a thought moment that arises and passes away, as hard as this might seem to understand or believe, is happy. This thought is happy. No, really, it is happy. You don't have to do anything for it to be happy. It's just happy. It's a happy thought. So, why do you need pleasure then? If the thought is happy by default, why do you need pleasure? Well, actually, you don't need pleasure. Pleasure is the product of a function. What happens is, when the mind is ignorant, What is ignorant after all again? It is not knowing enough about these five things. When you don't know enough about these five things, that is what ignorance is. But what happens? The mind thinks, and just because it thinks, does it mean that what it thinks is right? No, just because you think something doesn't mean it's right. But the mind can think, because the mind is perfectly capable of thinking, it thinks wrongly on this occasion that these five things are capable of conveying beauty. But is beauty something that they, per, that they possess? Is beauty something that is part of receive? I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Register? No, these are functions. Recognize, respond, perceive, they are not carriers of beauty because beauty which is the same as pleasure is the product of a function. Receiving is a function, it's not a product of a function. Registering is a function. Recognizing is a function. Responding is a function and perceiving is a function. It's not the product of a function, but beauty, aka pleasure, is the product of a function. And what is that function? Relief from vexation. None of these things cause vexation. What causes vexation? Ignorance is the root of vexation. When there is ignorance There is its partner in crime That is attachment right, we've talked about this But I'm going through this Again and again and again Because it's so important to understand this stuff Why is it important to understand this stuff? Well, what is ignorance after all again? Ignorance is not understanding this stuff And it is through not understanding this stuff I use the word lightly, this stuff or this dhamma is the reason that the mind treats these five things in ways that it ought not to right, this, this is the problem when you don't understand the true nature of receiving registering, recognizing, responding and perceiving the mind abuses them not knowing what they are thinking that they are conveyors of beauty. Thinking that they are conveyors of beauty is ignorance. And as soon as ignorance or wherever ignorance exists, attachment exists. Why does attachment exist wherever ignorance exists? Because what is ignorance after all? That these things are conveyors of beauty. So if they are conveyors of beauty, then, you know, you can't fault the mind for attaching to something if the mind thinks that beauty can be obtained from them. Don't you think so? I mean, let's put it this way. Let's imagine for a second that beauty actually existed in these five things. Right? If beauty actually existed in these five things then there wouldn't be any problem in attaching to them, would there? I mean, that wouldn't be wrong. It w- it w- there, wouldn't, there wouldn't be any problem with that. I mean, why wouldn't you? Because what is attachment after all? Attachment is, a, is, is, is another function of the mind it, or, or a thought. It's where, it's like, it's like grasping. It grasps expecting, what? Expecting beauty. So it grasps expecting beauty. And if beauty existed in them, I mean, this is hypothetical. If beauty expected, existed in them, there'd be absolutely nothing wrong with attaching. But the problem is, beauty is not in them. And this is why attachment, leads to suffering. How so? Well, this thought of the mind attaches to these five things. Why? Because it expects them to convey beauty. Why? Because it's ignorant and This expectation or expectation of beauty from these five things leaves the mind in vexation. So now the mind is vexed. So the moment these five things start to happen in the mind, the mind is in vexation and this vexation at some point has to be relieved right because you know you'd have to be able to explain how it is that the mind experiences pleasure after all now we know that when attachment is there this leads to vexation we've talked about this before right and relief from this vexation is pleasure right so so therefore for pleasure to happen you have to have vexation prior to that. This is where I introduced this concept as no pain, no gain. Now, this relief happens how? This relief happens when the mind expects receiving, registering, recognizing, responding, and perceiving to convey beauty. It awaits for these five things to take place in the mind or in itself, so to speak, and when they happen, right? So the mind's waiting for rece- for reception. This is not like reception on your mobile. This is, a, this is a, to be more precise, I'm just gonna shed a little bit or share a little bit more information at this point. This is what we call Rupa. Right? And there are six types of it. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and, and thought. So, these are impressions, mental impressions. When these mental, six mental impressions are received on the mind, it's what the mind has been waiting for all along. Why? Well, it's like the postman. Right? You see, when you see the postman, or when you open the door and you see the postman, you give him a great big smile, don't you? You give him a great big smile, not because he's the postman, Well, not just because he's the postman. You do so if you've been expecting a parcel. Let's put it this way. Imagine for a second that there was a rumor that people were posting parcel bombs randomly. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Let's say there's some terrorist organization and they were posting parcel bombs to people at random, right? And they were delivered by a particular uh, delivery company. Oh no, then they could just shut down that company. Okay, let's say you were delivered by just any delivery driver. Now, when you open, when you know that someone's knocked on the door and you go and open the door expecting Hopefully that it's not a delivery driver, right? And then you see the guy How are you going to respond? What's going to be your reaction? Great big smile or get out of my face So it's not a delivery driver that you smile to You smile because you receive a parcel usually something you've been expecting So you know, the analogy is true here as well. It, it relates very well because the mind is not waiting for this rupa. Instead, what it's waiting for is really beauty because it thinks be- it believes beauty is true happiness. The mind really doesn't want rupa, what it wants is beauty. But it believes that it is rupa that conveys this beauty is the carrier of beauty, is the transporter of beauty. Or that beauty is intrinsic. It's part and parcel of Rupa. So when Rupa arrives, the mind immediately snatches it, expecting to be delighted, expecting to be made happy, expecting to achieve pleasure. The thing is, it's been waiting all along for Rupert to arrive, and guess what? It just did. You know, in just the same way, like you smile when you see the delivery driver before you even open the parcel. I mean, you know, for all you know, you open the parcel and there could be a dead frog in it. Right? But you see the delivery driver and you greet him with a smile and you say hello and a great big smile, right? hoping that there's going to be something nice in that parcel. You're not smiling at the parcel. I mean, you are smiling because of the parcel, but at the driver, right? That's what, that's what normally happens. You're smiling because of the parcel, but you're smiling at the driver. In much the same way, the mind's waiting for beauty, but it likes to see the driver arrive. In other words, Rupa arrived. So the moment Rupa arrives, the mind goes into relief mode. Ah! Whenever the mind goes through that, at that moment it is relieved from vexation. Because it was vexed all along, waiting for the delivery driver. Was it the delivery driver that it wanted? No, it was the parcel, but the parcel is going to come on its own. That's going to be the delivery driver that's going to bring it. So like that, duty is not going to come on its own. It's going to be Rupa that's going to deliver it, that's going to bring it, that's going to convey it. So the mind awaits for Rupa to arrive. And the moment it arrives, the mind is so happy to see Rupa. It thinks that rupa's going to give it what? Beauty. So the mind thinks that Rupa is going to give it beauty. But the moment it sees Rupa, it is relieved. Doesn't wait to unpack the parcel to find out what's in it. It's already happy. And that relief, that relief is experienced by the mind at that moment as pleasure. Now has it even opened the parcel? To find out if there's beauty in it? No. But the mind experiences pleasure at that moment. And when the mind experiences pleasure at that moment, guess what? It thinks that it is Rupa that just brought me pleasure. The mind is not able to distinguish this phenomenon. It's not able to break it down and analyze and work out what's going on. It thinks, well, hey, I'm happy now. I'm happy now. And guess what? The driver's just arrived. So who's the driver here? It's Rupa. So the mind is really happy. And guess what? Rupa's just arrived. So Rupa did in fact bring me this beauty. Rupa did in fact bring me pleasure. But did Rupa bring pleasure? No. It simply Pleasure, after all, is a product of relief from vexation. It's a product of a function. It's not something that rupa or Vedana, which is register, sanya, which is recognize, or sankara, which is to respond, or vinyana, which is perceive. I shared these terms with you on a previous occasion, right? It's not something that any of these five things can bring. They are not bringers of beauty. You know, what purpose they serve is what I have explained to you. Their purpose is to receive, register, recognize, respond, and perceive. Not to bring beauty, but does the mind know this? No. Why does the mind not know this? Well, that's what ignorance is. And does the mind know that it's ignorant? No. This is what we talked about earlier, isn't it? The worst thing about ignorance is you don't know that it's ignorance. Isn't that the worst thing about ignorance? The fact that you don't know that you're ignorant? Because if you did, would you remain ignorant? Of course not. So here's what goes on then. This experience of pleasure, the mind wrongly attributes to this Rupa and to the Vedana and to the Sanya and to the Sankara and to the vijnana. These five things, collectively, are referred to as the five aggregates. Or in Pali known as the panchaskand. Don't worry too much about those terms, but they're referred to as the five aggregates. So next time, instead of going on saying rupa, or vedana, or sanya, or even receiving, registering, responding, I mean, they are mouthful after all, aren't they? So I can just refer to them as the five aggregates. So, I'm introducing a new term to you today, the five aggregates. When I say the five aggregates, you'll know exactly what I mean from now on. I'm referring to receiving, registering, recognizing, responding and perceiving. In English and Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and vinnana. in the Pali. These are the five aggregates. Now for any of you who have listened to or read or learn any Buddhist philosophy, particularly the Theravada tradition will be very familiar with the five aggregates and hopefully today you understand what these five aggregates are in their true sense. Now I'm not implying that this is a comprehensive description of the five aggregates, right, but this is enough for what we'll want to learn them for. So through the course of today's talk we've learned about the origins of pleasure and I have taken a microscopic view at the thought moment, to explain a concept that I outlined to you some weeks ago, in fact many weeks ago in our talks, and I shared with you this, this concept of vexation and the concept of pleasure, but today we have gone into some detail to understand how pleasure and vexation are actually experienced and the process that takes place in the mind for the mind itself to experience these feelings, these sensations. It's important we understand that because then even pleasure can no longer fool us. If you have fallen out of love with pleasure, if you had, then this would be further evidence for you. It would further support your cause. And if you hadn't, then hopefully having listened to this talk today would have helped you to get over that barrier. We'll discuss this in further detail in our future talks, not to worry in case you didn't quite grasp the concept. I did start to say right at the start, this might get a bit heavy, but please don't worry about it. Yeah, we will discuss this in further detail in, in future talks and I'm I'll do my very best to help you all understand and comprehend these teachings so that you can apply them in your lab of life and then start to make sense of this. Now, at this point, this may seem technical, it might seem academic, but this is gonna be very temporary. Before long, we're gonna start applying these ideas into very practical, applications and because as you know the best place to test any theory is in the lab of life and in the lab of life it's not theory we have in the lab of life we have real hard lively or real hard examples and that's where things are going to start to make a whole deal of sense so again one last time for today hang in there and it'll all make sense in due course. All right, so I'm gonna leave you with that for today. Before I do so, let's take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired and be grateful to all those who've helped us to get this far and all those who continue to help us further our understanding in the Dhamma and to free ourselves from all suffering. All right, let us take a moment to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, Chanting Pirit, listening to the Dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today, first and foremost let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching, and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the Noble lineage, in the form of the Tripitake, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand, and comprehend the Dharma. Let us also transfer these merits that we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns, resident in your local temples and nunneries, who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. And Let us transfer these merits to our teachers. And all other monks resident at this monastery, as well as all the Anagarikas and Anagarikas attached to the monastery. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be there by transliterating these sermons, sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them, and maids with the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woful plain, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain, and maids with the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbara. Sadhu Sarasa. There is also transfer maids we have acquired to our devotees and friends of the monastery, who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery, to those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes. May it to the power of these merits, they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and attain the supreme bliss of Nirvana. So, so, so. Let us also take a moment to transmit this to our mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, un- grandparents, uncles, aunts, aunts, nephews and nieces, our elders, friends and acquaintances, employers and employees, and to all those who have helped us, supported us, and assisted us in any way, shape or form. And by the power of these may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Let us also take a moment to transfer, may it's to the Devas, Brahmanas, spirits, and demons, primarily the Deva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who, protect, who are committed to protect and fulfill the Sambuddha Sasana. Let us also transmit to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may to the power of these may they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds. For the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of nibbāna. Let us also take a moment transformation to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all those who have been our families, friends, and acquaintances in this infinitely long journey in samsara, and to those who have helped, supported, and assisted us in any way, shape, or form they could. Let us also transform us to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nations, and to all those who've lost their lives in the wars, be their friend or foe and may they all rejoice in the merits that we have acquired today. There is also transfer merits to all those who've lost their lives in the natural calamities such as the tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides and pandemics, including the most recent and prevailing one. Reminding ourselves that among them will be those who've been friends and family to us in this long journey in samsara. Let us take a moment to transfer these merits to them and may to the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, Fulfill the Noble Eightfold Path and attain the supreme bliss of nibbana. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that, may through the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may through the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who has helped make this program a success, become a an vahantse, and Mahanse, in this very life itself and in the era, of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself, Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. And on that note, we shall conclude today's talk. Looking forward to continuing our conversation next week. May the blessings of the Noble Gem be with you all.